My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 2 in a series entitled Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This week's passage from Matthew is the story of the virgin birth. Now, most of us know it as a quaint Christmas story about the miracle of the birth of the baby Jesus. But reading it in our own modern context, we almost certainly miss the powerful and subversive character of this account. To understand the full context of the passage, we have to back up a little bit. In episode one of this series, I described how the genealogy that comes right before this story of the virgin birth deconstructs itself and becomes a parody of pedigree. After laboriously going through a long list of names in Israel, many of them kings, it turns out, according to this genealogy, that Jesus is not a son of any of those guys, but rather a son of Mary, a woman, through the Holy Spirit. The genealogy turns out to be a joke, a parody of pedigree. And already in the genealogy, we have an anti-king message. Jesus, the Messiah, the King is distanced from the kings of his people. Now, by the time of the writing of Matthew, the historical figure of Jesus would have already been known to the audience of the book. Paul and other evangelists had been spreading the story of Jesus, and the Gospel of Mark had already been written and circulated. So Matthew's audience would have known that Jesus was a peasant, coming from the common and desperately poor working class of Galilee, They would have known that Jesus was hailed as king by his followers, that his story was that of a great reversal, what some have come to call the upside-down kingdom. The peasant becomes king. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus further strengthens this central theme of a great reversal. The peasant with dubious pedigree becomes king. The story of the virgin birth further highlights this dubious pedigree by telling us that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. We already have seen in the preceding genealogy that the other four women in that genealogy, Mary is the fifth, that these women who invade an all-male lineage and help to deconstruct it, these women who bring the genealogy crashing down, these women all had sexual scandal in their stories. In today's passage, we have sexual scandal in the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Her boy is conceived out of wedlock, something not uncommon among desperately poor peasants, but still considered shameful in this honor-shame society. It is a common peasant tragedy, but Matthew turns this common peasant tragedy into a king-making event. Let's read the passage from the New Revised Standard Version, Matthew 1, 18-25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they had lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Now, with my introduction of this story as a reversal of a peasant tragedy of shame into a king-making event, perhaps you may have been able to hear the story a little differently than you have in the past. But I imagine that for the most part, the story still feels like that of a grand miracle of a virgin birth, complete with angel appearances and fulfillment of prophecy. In other words, a feel-good religious Christmas story. So let's unpack this story in its first-century Mediterranean world context. First, I want to address the idea that this story proclaims the miracle of a virgin birth. That the virgin birth is to be understood as miracle might seem like a given to the modern reader. But Richard Horsley has argued convincingly, I think, in his book Jesus and Magic, that the concept of miracle is a modern one that we project backward onto biblical and other ancient texts. When we think of something as a miracle, what we mean is that it contradicts the laws of physics and nature. It is supernatural. But that is not what ancient people would have thought. Most ancient people had no knowledge of physics or the scientifically articulated laws of nature. Science was not yet widely known. Its influence on society was still in the future. For most ancient people, things that we call miracles, like the virgin birth, were just the way the world worked. Not that they weren't amazing events, but something does not have to contradict the laws of nature to be amazing. We are amazed at technology, and sometimes nature itself. But we only call these things miracles as a form of hyperbole to express our level of amazement. We don't actually believe that the laws of physics or nature are being contradicted. Well, that's the way ancient people would have understood something like the virgin birth. Amazing but not contradicting any set laws of nature. Not only was there no scientific worldview in the ancient world, against which some events might be understood as miracles, but there was no such thing as a secular society. Everyone understood that the world operated in ways that we might today think of as miraculous or spiritual. Everyone believed in spirits and gods and the spiritual power of words, i.e. prayers, blessings, incantations. The version of gods and spirits and spiritual words and the stories that you subscribe to depended on your tribe or nation or political allegiances. In other words, it was all political or sociopolitical. What we think of today as religion, to them was more like political ideology and narrative stories and conceptualizations of the world that told them who they were, who their leaders were, the order of their society, and how their society related to other societies. 
And so that brings us back to today's passage. All the elements in it carry political significance. Ancient people would not have understood the virgin birth as miraculous, but they would have understood it as extraordinary. Virgin births, or births that came about through the sexual or mystical unions of gods and mortals, were the way that great men, especially kings and emperors, were said to be born. Most importantly, Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time that Jesus was born, was said to be born as the result of a mystical union between a god and the mother of Augustus, whose name was Attia. The Roman historian Suetonius tells the story of the birth of Augustus this way. When Attia had come in the middle of the night to the solemn service of Apollo, she had her litter set down in the temple and fell asleep, while the rest of the matrons also slept. On a sudden, a serpent glided up to her and shortly went away. When she awoke, she purified herself as if after the embraces of her husband and at once there appeared on her body a mark in colors, like a serpent, and she could never get rid of it, so that presently she ceased ever to go to the public baths. In the tenth month after that, Augustus was born, and was therefore regarded as the son of Apollo. So here we have the story of a mystical union between the mother of Augustus and the god Apollo in the form of a snake. Notice that, although one might find sexual symbolism in the snake, the tone of the story is not highly sexual, but rather solemn and reverential. Attia goes to the temple to honor and worship Apollo. Also, the story gives us a hint of possible shame and subsequent redemption for the woman. She bears the mark of the serpent on her body and has to avoid going to public baths. But the risk of shame is nothing compared to the risk for a peasant woman of being found pregnant out of wedlock. The similarities and contrasts of the birth of Jesus and Augustus are striking, and they form part of the backdrop for our story in Matthew. Jesus is born during the reign of Augustus. Augustus becomes the first Roman emperor to bear the title Son of God, meaning Son of Apollo or sometimes understood as son of the divine Julius Caesar. Julius adopted Augustus as his son and was declared a god after his death. It depends on which version of Roman propaganda or which Roman poet you're reading as to how the title son of God for Augustus Caesar is understood. So, Augustus Caesar is declared son of God. This was printed on Roman coins that circulated throughout the empire including in Israel. Augustus was worshipped as son of God. Furthermore, many of the subsequent emperors, including Tiberius, the emperor on the throne when Jesus was an adult, the emperor on the throne when most of the story in the Gospel of Matthew takes place, he is also called son of God. And as we shall see later, coins circulated even in Israel proclaiming Tiberius as Son of God. And so the central element of our story in Matthew turns out to be political. Matthew tells us that the peasant Jesus, 
not Caesar, is the true Son of God. But Roman propaganda is not the only context for the title Son of God. All four Gospels in the New Testament, including that of Matthew, come out of ancient Israel. And in Israelite tradition, the Son of God was the King of Israel. 2 Samuel 7, 12-14, 1 Chronicles 22, 9-10, Psalms 2 and 89 all declare the Davidic line of kings as sons of God. So when Matthew tells this story of Jesus, born of a mystical union between Mary and the Holy Spirit, making him the Son of God, we are being told that a new Israelite king has been born, an anointed one, a Messiah. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. A Messiah who will somehow deliver his people from the false Son of God in Rome. Matthew employs both Israelite monarchy tradition and Roman propaganda themes to tell us that a deliverer for Israel has been born. Now you might be wondering at this point how Jesus could be understood as one who delivers his people from Rome since this story does not end with Israel free from Rome. That question is the central theme of this gospel. It is a sort of riddle that gets worked out throughout the rest of the story. So I'm not going to try to solve this riddle now, but I do want to address the statements of deliverance in today's passage. The angel Gabriel tells Joseph to name his son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now to our modern ears, this part of the story sounds very much like it is speaking to individual spiritual salvation, the forgiveness or deliverance from sin. Despite the fact that it's not talking about individual sin, but collective sin clearly in this text. Well, that is because of how other texts have been translated for us dealing with the forgiveness of sins and because we live in the modern world, especially those of us living in the West, especially those of us living in the United States, which is the most individualistic society the world has ever known. I'll say more about that in a future episode. A better translation or a more dynamic translation of this part of our passage might be you are to name him, God liberates us from oppression, because he will liberate his people from the shame of their oppression. Let me explain. Liberation from sin in the ancient world was a socio-political event. Caesar, in addition to being worshipped as son of God, was also said to take away sin. The poet Horace sings that Augustus Caesar wiped away sin, and revived the ancient virtues. Deliverance from sin was something that a great leader did for his people. In today's context, it might be similar to saying that this great leader will make our country great again. He will restore the traditional values. He will restore the nation, take away its sin and its shame. Of course, in the U.S. context, that sounds a lot like the rhetoric of the political right, restoring traditional values and making America great again. But there is corresponding rhetoric on the left. For example, the political left promises to end the sin of marginalizing minorities, of marginalizing 
women and immigrants. It wants to extend civil rights to restore human, if not traditional, values. The left also wants to deliver the nation from sin. It just defines sin differently. So if in the Roman context, deliverance from sin meant restoring the ancient virtues, making Rome great again. In the Israelite context, deliverance from sin meant ending oppression. In the Hebrew prophets, sin is associated with injustice and foreign oppression. The prophets rail against the sins of social and economic injustice, and the punishment for this sin is foreign invasion. For example, Isaiah lambasts the rich for gobbling up the land, leaving nowhere for anyone else to live. He cries out, Ah, you who join house to house and field to field until there is room for no one but you, and you are left to live alone in the land. Isaiah then goes on to pronounce foreign invasion, which will result in the dispossession of the rich as the punishment for this economic injustice. To illustrate the dispossession of the rich, he proclaims, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Foreign oppression was the punishment for sin. So when the prophets speak of the end of foreign oppression, they speak of the forgiveness of sin. For example, Jeremiah, speaking at the end of the Babylonian oppression, speaks for God, saying, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. If deliverance from sin in the Roman context means making Rome great again, reviving traditional values, then deliverance from sin in the Israelite context means the end of social and economic injustice and deliverance from foreign oppression. To say that Jesus will deliver his people from their sin means that he will deliver them from social and economic injustice and Roman oppression. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh delivers, Yahweh being the ancient Israelite name for God. The salvation or deliverance spoken of in the name Jesus in the ancient Israelite context refers to deliverance from oppression. If you read through the Hebrew scriptures, salvation is always sociopolitical. The name Jesus is also equal to the name Joshua. The only reason that we are not aware that these two names are the same is that Jesus comes to us through Greek and Joshua comes to us directly from the Hebrew. But a Hebrew translation of Matthew or any of the Gospels would call the central character Yeshua, which is Joshua in English. The original Israelite audience of Matthew's Gospel understood that Joshua was being born. Joshua in Israelite history was a military leader who defeated Israel's foreign enemies. It should stand out that this Joshua, who was born in Matthew's gospel, will not have an army and will not use violence. His campaign will be expressly nonviolent. So the angel Gabriel tells Joseph that he is to name his son Jesus, which means essentially Yahweh delivers his people because he will deliver his people from injustice and foreign oppression.
Now the narrator tells us that all of this is happening to fulfill the text from Isaiah. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Well, of course, this text from Isaiah is not literally about Jesus. It is about a child born at the time of Hezekiah during the Syrio-Ephraimite invasion. But the birth of that child would be a sign that Israel would be delivered from foreign invaders. The birth of Jesus in Matthew performs the same function. Jesus' birth is not a literal fulfillment of the Isaiah text, but a sort of literary fulfillment. Just as the birth of the baby Emmanuel in Isaiah serves as a sign of Israel's deliverance, so the birth of Jesus in Matthew signals deliverance for Israel. Matthew loves to show throughout his gospel how the story of Jesus literarily or thematically fulfills the ancient texts of Israel. The reason that the birth of Jesus is understood as fulfillment, however, is not merely because it performs the same literary function as the birth of Emmanuel in the Isaiah text. The connection between the two texts runs deeper than that. It's more powerful than that. You see, it was commonly understood during the time of the Roman occupation of Israel that all the texts that speak of Israel's deliverance remained unfulfilled. All previous liberations had been a mere mirage. Because if Israel broke free from one foreign oppressor, another one came right on its heels to take its place. And Israel continued to live year after year, decade after decade, century after century, under the boot of a foreign oppressor. It was especially understood that the Babylonian exile had never ended. While the ruling class of Israel did come back from exile in Babylon, they remained under the rule of the Persians. After the Persians came the Greek empires, and then after them the Roman Empire. It never ended. This sense of never-ending oppression takes us back one more time to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. The genealogy mentions the deportation to Babylon, but it conspicuously does not mention the return. The author seems to be saying that the Babylonian exile never ended. The people may have returned, but due to the continued occupation by foreign empires, they remain exiles in their own land. Matthew tells us that the birth of Jesus heralds at last the fulfillment of the ancient texts of liberation for the people of Israel. The exile and all oppression will finally come to an end. That is what the story of the virgin birth is all about. A peasant woman finds herself pregnant, facing possible shame, but her shame is transformed into a king-making event of liberation for her people. She gives birth to a Messiah who will fulfill the ancient texts of liberation and deliver Israel from the shame of its oppression. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been Episode 2 of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Music